Welcome to the GC On Demand podcast, a show about people, about process, about technology, about community. It's great conversations with great technologists about things that matter to you, that matter to all of us. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to visit gcondemand.io for all of the show notes. And with that, let's get started. And here we are again. Welcome, everybody, to the GC On Demand podcast. Uh, a very fun time in the sort of growth of any medium, uh, podcast especially, is when we get to bring people back. Uh, one of my favorite things is is looking for the right opportunity to keep bringing familiar faces and, and voices to the podcast. And I'm lucky enough to do that today. Of course, for folks that don't already know me, my name is Eric Wright. Uh, you can find me I'm on Twitter at Disco Posse, and I'm in the Green Circle community at Disco Posse as well. Uh, and we've got ourselves, uh, again, a great uh, friend of the community and uh, also somebody who wrote a pretty, pretty cool article recently uh, of the many things I've seen. With that, I'd like to say uh, welcome aboard, Rob uh, Hirschfeld. Rob, if you want to reintroduce yourself to the audience, and then we're going to talk a little about spiraling Obstat. Excellent. Eric, thank you for the introduction. My name is Rob Hirschfeld. I'm Zeehicle Online. I am CEO and a co-founder of a company called RackN, specializes in hybrid infrastructure automation. Uh, so really trying to solve the problem of helping people do a you know operations in a portable way across physical, cloud, on-premises, colo, you know, sort of make infrastructure not matter, if you will. Um, in, in a really positive way, and I've been really deeply involved in the OpenStack community, and now the uh, Kubernetes community, and now this uh, crazy hybriding of Kubernetes and OpenStack together. Yeah, there's there's really a, a rich opportunity in front of us, and and I love that you're doing such a great job of bridging it. And what I really love is that you know it's seeing the opportunity be there for you because you've been doing this kind of thing for a long time you've had this vision yeah. and you know you know talk we could talk briefly for a second about you know crowbar now rebar and <laughs> and then we'll get into you know what we wanted to talk about around the sort of the SRE approach to infrastructure oh the history might be useful um, with this so boy what my team was originally at Dell in the early OpenStack days, and um, we had done a ton of, of cloud solutions, hyperscale solutions like Joyent and Azure and Eucalyptus, um, Wayback Machine type stuff. And um, it, we, we had battle scars like you wouldn't believe um, deploying this stuff. And when we hit OpenStack, we realized that we, we really were going to have an operational challenge because OpenStack was very fast moving relied on Linux very deeply. There were very few operational baselines. And every every infrastructure we touched was different. Every data center was just enough different that it was really hard to, to get things started without a lot of professional services. And we built a platform to, to automate a lot of the things that we thought were routine options, right? That was, that was what Crowbar was, right? A standard way to boot, provision, install Raiden BIOS, set up DNS, you know, Really, sort of the this um, uh, I can't I hate using the word canonical, but it's the right word here. That's but, right. But the sort of <laughs> I, the, the sort of this right way to install OpenStack, um, 
And that's what Crowbar was. And amazingly, it's still in use. SUSE still maintains that, that project um, that we did for Dell. We got, we got into it and, and realized that Crowbar wasn't sufficient because it really wasn't able to adapt to the operational environments that we were coming across, right? Networking changes would break it, scale would break it. Uh, somebody who didn't like Chef would throw it out because it was Chef only. Right. Um, and and that's really what gave birth to Digital Rebar, um, which is a much more flexible, composable infrastructure that can handle that type of operations. And then that led to being able to be hybrid because mixing once you once you're flexible, you can mix cloud and physical infrastructure in an exchangeable way. And it couldn't have worked out better that you happen to choose naming of the projects that one is a rigid piece of metal, the other one is a much more flexible piece of metal that can provide <laughs> rigidity for infrastructure when the right things are wrapped around it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I had not gone that direction in the uh, naming. I, I'm glad you appreciate it. Um, it took us a long but it, it seems natural now. It took us a long time to come up with... Um, the new project name. Yeah, no one, no one ever understands how painful that part of the process is. You could come up with a platform long before you come up with a name, and then, and then there's, you know, 18 people arguing over the name uh, that uh, that had nothing to do with the build of the project. So it's uh, it's a whole different beast unto itself. Now, the the thought around, you know, SRE, and and this is kind of it's still fresh in a lot of people's minds as to you know what the what what it is, you know, what you know the, as far as the definition, we talk about site reliability engineering and and site reliability engineer, and I think it kind of did it come out of the Google camp? Was that really where it, where it originated, Rob? It didn't. It, I mean, it's actually a, a long-standing term, but for a, a very narrow form of ops, and Google morphed it into something much broader, um, which they were doing quietly and sort of covertly in, in, in Google sort of fashion. And then Google in the last six months, uh, especially with the Kubernetes project, um, has really started to open up about their operational practice. Um, but site reliability used to be just, you know, monitoring performance, because my website up, is it down? You know, that was what it sort of it originally was, you know, monitoring a website and the load balancers and all that that went into it. And Google went deeper. And they realized that they couldn't, and because they could, um, that, that the site reliability engineering team really had to own the full chain of command from the data center all the way to their website. Because right? if you think about it, that's right, Google was at the time really a web property, still that's is right. mostly web properties. Um, and, and what happened is the web team said, well, you care about uptime. Up We're going to work all the way backwards and run the infrastructure because that's the only way we can guarantee uptime. Um, and it's it, the concepts that surfaced out of that are really revolutionary. Um, I think because that, it, it really it, it's really system thinking. Yeah, when, and like so that's the that's where people kind of it's tricky that we've we've chosen you know a name that kind of seems to have a different connotation. Like you say, we think of, of site reliability as like web app, you know, and like it kind of, like it stops at the application layer and it's really around like service uptime, node uptime, and there's those things. But now when we think about composable infrastructure, those are, you know, service container, you know, the, the physical bare metal portion of it is the, 
it seems to be almost the least important piece of it right now because there's this sort of blind trust that the physical hardware is okay. And what do we do that's like literally just one tiny abstraction above that? And and that seems to be where the where we have to move our thinking a lot more. It isn't. It isn't though. I mean, this is what I liked about the the Google SRE concepts, and they just published a book. If you know, it's it. There's a great book out there. I highly recommend reading it. Um, because they, they actually go all the way down to when their ops team was building a data center and how they had to go from taking a month to turn up a data center to a week to turning up a data center. And then they just published um, a security, something about how Google secures their infrastructure. And they go all the way down to uh, custom chips, ASICs, um, and credentialing and things like that that are available to everybody, but Google integrates it. Um, yeah, I think the, that they, type the, the of network one as well. Change. Yeah, like you said, the they they've they've realized they they had a very unique thing, and and maybe this is one, and and this is what's really cool, uh, you know. And I want to give a shout out to to your team and what you're doing, is that kind of like what Alex Polvey talks about CoreOS. He says like the Giphy, you know, Google infrastructure for everyone, and they are really thinking of of a particular way to target it, and and you as well, you know, not where you don't necessarily have custom ASICs. You don't have the ability to choose that this is the particular thing that you can model everything around. You, you've taken an approach, it seems, around complete you know, hybrid approach. We cannot guarantee that we've got the same custom physical hardware, the same custom physical network. And that's that, that neat right. thing that I, that I like how you're taking the approach of. Thank you. I, that's what we found is that even in companies that think that they're very homogeneous, there's a lot more variation between their hardware, between their infrastructure, between their data centers, between their ops than they're used to. And then as soon as they start throwing in, oh, we're going to do these things in cloud, the variation between cloud and physical is really high. And the lack of fidelity between that means that people silo their operations, they do things in multiple ways, and it, it ends up adding a lot of cost and complexity to their ops. So that, that's sort of said. The other thing I would, I would note is that a lot of people have capabilities in their servers, their hardware, that they don't even realize they've got, uh, right? The, the custom ASICs that Google's bragging about are really available to everybody, right? TPM um, capabilities, uh, trust, uh, trusted platform modules, and um, uh, and um, hardware security modules, which include encryption for your system, are very accessible technologies. They're well understood standards. They're just incredibly hard to set up um, because most people don't look at their, their servers as a system. They look at them as individual units. Um, right. And that, frankly, that's what, what we see as the problem. It's the lack of systems, systems thinking from an ops perspective. And I think that's the, the right part to, to pick up. Let's talk about spiraling ops debt and the SRE coding imperative, which was a phenomenal article, really, really well done. And it's part of, like, you've got an SRE series you're writing about at, at your website, which for folks is robhirschfeld.com. Uh, and so talk about the inspiration, you know, and, and what the background is around this idea of spiraling ops debt, Rob. Oh, excellent. Um, some of this comes from, you know, reading the the Google, the Google book, and you know, then of course salted with with my own personal experience and frustrations. Um, so the Google the Google book 
does something sort of radical. They, they start with this premise of 50% of an operator's time should be spent in development, which when I first heard about that, I said, oh my god, that's insane, right? Operators need to spend their time doing ops. But the more I, I look at what's going on in industry with, you know, we're speeding up developers and they're getting more efficient, they're producing more code, there's more variation, so complexity is going way up, right? We've got, you know, Kubernetes on a three-month cycle and Docker on a fast cycle and SDNs on a cycle around that. You've got to do all that work to build a working infrastructure and then figure out if it's Google or Amazon or, or physical gear or OpenStack. It's, it's, it's insane, right? There's so many moving parts. So you've got increasing developer demand at the same time you have increasing platform complexity. Um, and the reality is, is that if you, just, if you just keep doing things the way you've been doing it, those two factors will bury you in ops. And this was sort of, I've seen this a lot. I, I watch people, you know, we sell, uh, you know, Digital Rebar and we, we provide commercial support for it, is, is a platform that allows people to fully automate their infrastructure. But the cost is, it's, it's a new tool. It's more complex. It's a system level tool instead of a node-by-node -node tool. And what we find is, is that the people we talk to are so underwater they don't have time to do a new tool. They're sort of like, oh, I hate using Cobbler. It's really a pain in the butt. I, I, I spend so much time doing it. And we offer, like, well, we can come in and automate that in a week. And they're like, I don't have a week. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, it's, this is, it, it literally is the truth. They, they're, so, they're so behind in getting their stuff done that, you know, it, they can't sharpen the saw. Um, or they can't take the risk that they're going to try sharpening the saw and it won't work. And, and that's where, you know, I sort of had this aha moment that what, what Google's really saying is, is that you, if you don't have a way for your operations, operational team to breathe, and we know this is a known thing like for development teams and, you know, physical inventory and management, that's all that. If you can't breathe, then you can't, you know, you're, you can't actually be secure, you can't be robust, you can't swim. And so um, that's really where this spiraling ops debt concept comes from because what we're watching happen is that people are saying well my ops team can't swim they're so far behind the only option that they have is to is to reset right burn yeah. down my data center move it all to Amazon um, you know wipe the slate clean damn the torpedoes um, and then burn the boats that I came in on. <laughs> it's a it's a very it's a very violent shift that we seem to be taking sometimes in order to respond to the fact that we haven't kept up for a while. And it's it's such a it's like saying that like I I'm having trouble losing five pounds. Let me saw off my leg in order to to like really get at this thing. And and that's kind of I right. feel the approach that people are getting into. And they but there really is you know, to coin the phrase of all the good infomercials, like th there has to be a better way. A and this is where this thing comes in, right? Right. This And this is what we're, what we, so one of the things that, that we really had an objective for when we watched OpenStack become a dumpster fire. Um, and, and I say that with all due respect and love, because <laughs> I was part of it. Um, and it's it's not. I mean, Open OpenStack is, I think, actually starting to see some 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 dawn of, of some good things. I, I have some personal. It's a whole. That's a whole new po another podcast. I have I have things I, I would rather see them focused on than than the, the way they've, they've spread out the project. 
Um, but the, the thing that happened is, is that since every operational environment was so different, when OpenStack showed up, it, it didn't have a way to solve that problem. And so we had, you know, every OpenStack deployment was different, every deployment methodology was customized, there was no sharing back into the community, right? One person would be successful, but it was impossible for somebody, the next person, to benefit from their operational uh, use cases. But I know, I mean, I've, I went to a lot of the operational summits, and each operator was doing great things, and they'd compare notes, but they wouldn't share scripts, they wouldn't share code, they were all islands. And that, to me, hurt OpenStack. Um, I'm worried it's going to hurt Kubernetes and, and other things. And, and what I really want to see, and one, one of the things that we're very passionate about, part of our, our vision uh, for, for Digital Rebar, is this concept of open ops or operational reuse. So that you can say, well, I'm going to reuse this Ansible script and make it work across multiple sites. Um, and what we've done with Digital Rebar is a really great example. We're about to cut over into code for Digital Rebar that uses the upstream Ansible playbooks for Kubernetes unmodified. Wow. But then it runs them. So, the, yeah, this is, a, this is a really, really big deal. Um, and it takes a ton of work on the background to make it happen. Um, but you take the upstream Ansible playbook. So there's a community around, you know, Kubernetes doing Ansible work. It's, it's really cool. We take those playbooks, zero modifications, and run them on Amazon, Google, Metal, OpenStack, it, with options for Rocker or Do Docker or Rocket, um, three different SDN layers right now, multiple operating system choices, right? It's this a la carte menu out of Ansible playbooks, and you can run them all in parallel. It's, it's, it's really cool. That, to me, is paying down the operational debt, because now you can make choices that fit your operational needs, but still use community stuff. If you find a bug in the playbook, you can submit it back, and then we can test it against these, you know, what I just named a, a, a combinatorial matrix of like 48 different combinations that's at right. least. <laughs> um, that, that's where we get community acceleration around these projects. Um, One of the things, Rob, I think that I, and you talked about it with the OpenStack Ops, you know, challenge of we we had so many people doing really cool things. We continue to have. I say had like it's like it's, it's died already, but like it's <laughs> it's we've, we've got but all yeah. these amazing things oh, going yeah, on. Goodness. But how do we how do we encourage and create the right way to share that stuff back into this common these common frameworks and creating common frameworks? Because I think the problem uh, we've always got is like someone like they get a great way to do something and then they run with it. And you hear of it's like the stuff of legend, like, oh, yeah, I hear the guys at SAP. They're doing like and that was the whole neat thing of like how they were doing OpenStack on Kubernetes and they had operationalized on like three distinct physical topologies and they had a real nice way to do it. And you're like, that's really cool. How do you do that? And he's like, okay, I got to go, guys. And like you, that was it. You, <laughs> it, would, it now is this like biblical thing. Where you're like, wow, I hear you can do it, but I don't know how. Like, how do we yeah. get that that tribal knowledge back into, you know, what we're doing, what what you're doing with rebar and, and other things? So one of one of the things that really hurts these projects, in my opinion, I'm very strongly opinionated about this, is that. Um, you don't rely on the project to fix its own operational 
framework. Um, because it, it sort of, in my opinion, it breaks the abstractions of the project. So one of the problems that OpenStack encountered was they, the community said, we're going to use OpenStack to solve OpenStack's operational problems. And that, that happened in the, at the Hong Kong summit, so not, not Tokyo, at the actual Hong Kong summit in China, so that was uh, 2012, I think, um, 2013. Um, and, uh, it really derails the effort because the, the focus of OpenStack is to serve the OpenStack use cases, not the, the, the platform for OpenStack. Kubernetes is trying to do the same thing, and I think it's, it's a distraction. It, you know, operational tooling around you know, operational needs for these platforms is, is different than what the platforms are trying to do, which is simplify it and hide all this stuff. And that, this is, it, it is very simple, right? OpenStack is meant to hide all the operational complexity of a data center. So don't make it understand all that stuff in order to run itself. Run it. Let the let, and this is where I love SREs as a concept. The SREs as a concept say, look, we're going to have a, a, a select group of operators. They're going to deal with the nuances and complexities and all the the, the underlay mess, right? Um, what what I heard one Google engineer describing as the lizard brain. Um, <laughs> but sort of this this right it's, it's it's the plumbing, right? You you don't you don't want um, OpenStack to have to expose network interface card topologies and stuff like that. You're trying to hide all that. So, what what we did with Digital Rebar is we said, look, the underlay automation has its own abstraction, its own challenges, its own heterogeneity. We deal with that, right? We wrote a platform that that says the data center is a messy place. We're going to get dirty. That's okay so that people running OpenStack and Kubernetes and other platforms never have to worry about that, right? You want 90% of your people at that abstraction layer. And then you want the 10, this is what, what SRE says, you want that 10% of the team to deal with the messy reality of the, the real physical infrastructure and let them spend their time automating and cleaning it up and making that happen. And that's, that's a lot of this balance where we need to have shared ways to automate the underlay um, so that that team, that SRE team, can improve their productivity and not reinvent the wheel over and over again. But help expecting them to do it with Kubernetes or OpenStack is a misuse of the tool. You're, you're pulling the tool off-center, in my opinion, and slowing down the actual use of those tools to solve a different problem. So this is one of the things I always think of in, you know, we look at the successes that have been you know, discovered through a lot of really good, you know, embracing the SRE approach, you know, and this Giphy approach. Now, Rob, mm -hmm. where's the where's the floor of like environment size where it's almost too much of an investment? And I don't, it, in my mind, it never is. But the reality is like, I believe a three host environment should be automated, you know, as much as a 3000 host. But do you do you think that there's this kind of like low watermark where it becomes really really tough to justify, especially for folks that are new to it, that they really don't, oh, you know, this question. is a fresh concept. Oh, I, I love the I love this question, right? If, if it really depends on on not where you are today, but where you need to get to, um, right? If if you are truly only going to be a three host environment, or if you're just playing with something, use the cloud. Right, that's 
you know, if you're playing with Kubernetes and you just want to learn how to use it, use Amazon, right? Use Google. It's it's that's fine. There's some tools that make it super easy to get running on those platforms, but don't expect that that's going to then translate into um, a scale HA secure production and upgradable thing. If if you know that you're going to that environment, if you know that you're going to run a hundred node on-premises infrastructure on metal for Kubernetes, which I, I think a lot of people are doing or should be considering, it's it's a it's a smart way to run a an infrastructure. Then then start with something more like what we're doing with Rebar, where you can actually operationalize it up front. You're going to have a little bit more learning curve. Um, and frankly, it takes 20 minutes to do a rebar on Amazon thing. You just have to install rebar first. Oh, the, oh, the horror! Um, <laughs> but the I, this is we 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 see this all the time. People want to use Terraform or Ansible because it's a desktop tool and it you know it's super fast to download and and get something running. And it is. They're they're very powerful tools. We love we love Ansible. We use a ton of it. Um, but it's not it's not an op you know running. The data center from a laptop tool is is an anti-pattern. Um, you need something that maintains the state of your data center so that you can maintain it. Um, <laughs> the so, but you you know that's that's what I would suggest is that you know if you're going to be looking at running infrastructure on an ongoing basis, then take some time to figure out how you're going to sustain it up front. Invest in those tools. Learn how to make it happen. Um, and frankly, we've been spending a lot of time and, and working really hard to make it so that that's not a big penalty. Um, you know that you can you can come in and do it. And here's here's the rationale, and this really comes straight back to that that blog post, is that if you can start in a place where you are able to stay with the community, and not be inventing your own stuff and and pulling you know being able to pull things in and then give back and share. Um, it will really help you avoid being into an operational debt uh, place, right? The, the, you know, we, we talk to people who are still maintaining kickstart files, which there's no, there is, <laughs> I'll say this very, very directly, there is no corporate payback for you, for anybody out there to be maintaining kickstart files for their company. Um, it just isn't, it's not a value proposition. That's the type of thing where you should be able to reuse a, like a templated system like what we've been building um, or you know something you're know, doing that if it those just they're just not value added places um, go up get up stack quick <laughs> yeah I think and on that one Rob one of the things that I find is there just because of the I think there's networking and that's probably what the most scariest challenge for a lot of of raw ops folks is that in order for them to get to that next layer of, of automation, they kind of has to embrace, you know, it's going to be, you know, networking with, you know, whether it's vSphere auto deploy, whether it's going to be, you know, running Pixie, you know, running, running environments, which have a little bit more care and feeding on that one hunk of network infrastructure or that the ability to make sure that when you're running like a digital rebar, you know, admin node that it's not going to get severed off or, or interfere with other stuff that's, that's happening out there. I've, that I think seems to be the, the first most challenging step. And once they kind of get comfortable with the network side, then all bets are off and they're like, Oh, this is awesome. I don't know why I haven't been doing this for 10 years. Right. Uh, I, I will tell you, you nailed it. Um, 
what we find is people can run the demo on the cloud where there's no networking pretty easily. As soon as they step into trying to bootstrap on their own infrastructure and they have to know enough about their uh, subnet mask to build a Pixie, to build a DHCP server, yeah, um, I, they they run aground and and they could you know they can call us, <laughs> but people sort of are, you know want to figure it out themselves. And I I agree with you they that ends up being a big problem. Um, networking is is hard enough. It's not getting easier. Um, yeah, but that that is it's it's factor. We we find that we for very good reasons we ship with DHCP. Um, it doesn't automatically broadcast. You have to configure it so that it broadcasts on the subnets that you want it to broadcast. Yeah, good behavior for us. Yeah, that's um, right. Excellent choice, and thank you for that. <laughs> Every network person uh, in the world thanks you for that. <laughs> yeah. I, but at the same time, what it means is that if you want the system to come up, you have to understand enough about what interface you're binding to and what network what network it's going to be on. So, yeah, I've had a couple of I've seen like like products that will ship, and you know uh, I can I can call this one out because it it has long sort of gone away. Was the original like HPE uh, like the staccato like their um, the the their Helion cloud. When I, I saw it, oh, this is great. They finally going to ship it as like you can like kind of push it out as an OVA. People can keep the tires on it. And everything inside it was was awash with hard-coded IP addresses and networks. And I'm like, mm -hmm. there's really no way that people are going to be able to stand this up except on VirtualBox. I'm like, that's cute. But if they really want to right. test it out in multi-node, then the, there was a huge lift to get to that next stage. And, and that, like I said, when you ship with, you know, things are down, you have the options to do the configuration. While that is a tiny bit more, you know, like that first step, at least you've made the, you've got the mindset of like, let's make it open. They have to do a little configuration, so it's going to match their environment. Because, you know, time and time again, I see people, they ship out a demo platform, and it's just, like I said, it's just wrapped with, with static IP addresses, which are going to be a huge problem for many environments. <laughs> I, it's it was definitely something we walked through in the evolution of the system, right? Um, and that's that's where that's why we ended up where we were. But it, you do have to understand your environments. We have the same problem with uh, Amazon uh, uh, subnet IDs or VPCs. Is that if you have you know multiple VPCs defined in your environment, then um, you know you have to know which ones you're bringing VMs up on before so they connect to each other. Um, and it's it's just that's the way it is, and and people overlook this from you know if we want to talk about hybrid and um, you know multi-cloud operations, Google, Amazon, Azure, OpenStack networking models are different. Um, they're you know even more different than switch vendors on physical gear. Um, and so you know if you're trying to create portable operational scripts, um, which I, people should want to do. It, it really requires some understanding of what, what you're doing with these different network models, right? Subnet broadcasts between Amazon and Google have different behaviors. It's crazy. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. When, then I had the classic, the question that got asked me, and I just, I knew I was talking, we, we were we were way over someone's head. It was like, they said, like, how do you enable, like, jumbo frames out into the cloud? I was like, wow, you, you just need to stop. You just oh, my goodness. To, you need to stop right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, yeah, even when you are pretty, you know, at the sort of, like, slightly higher level where you're able to 
understands, you know, overlay networks across multiple clouds. Like you said, it's just adapting to these, the idiosyncrasies of each local environment. And everybody thinks like, oh, the cloud creates such flexibility but for that cloud. Yes. <laughs> it's, they are all effectively a raccoon trap. Like they're, they're designed to create, I loved the AWS summit. They stopped saying vendor lock-in, then they started saying legal lock-in. We stop the legal lock-in that you have because you can just vacate the entire AWS environment today. And there's nothing stopping you from doing that. And it allows them to not be stuck with having the thing of like, but it's all your tooling. It's all your, you know, specifics. So again, you know, huge props to your team on like, how do you, how do you pick the the horse to hitch to and then like how do you keep on top of those changes and the continuously shifting you know underlay environments that you're walking into when you've got a public cloud so that that's probably worth a, a small drill down for this also um, because one of the anti patterns we saw with DevOps scripts um, was that they had a tendency to build? Um, they're all you know, it's all runbook type type thinking, uh, but they would build uh, very connected chains of logic. Ansible you know builds a big inventory file where all the variables are injected at the beginning. Uh, Chef does variable searches across a shared you know shared database. But what that ended up doing is you ended up with very connected uh, you know actions. These roles that people were, were wiring together had very deliberate assumptions, roll to roll to roll to roll, where the variables would sort of string through them. Um, and that was one of the anti-patterns that we encountered from a from a, a work perspective, because you would end up with uh, assumptions cross roles that were very hard to troubleshoot. The reason why that I'm connecting that statement to what you made is that as people go trying to connect all these pieces together and using more Amazon services or trying not to use Amazon services, they have a tendency to embed assumptions into those role into those roles uh, because it's convenient and and it's it's very hard to pull back from that once you've once you've gotten all in. Um, that's one of the anti patterns we saw with Crowbar. Is definitely that, that's I'm, I'm actually working on some blog posts about exactly that, but it's it's hard to explain how how dangerous most sort of the more senior the more seasoned. Uh, SREs and DevOps engineers will see this, um, but it's a very hard pattern to explain uh, for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think it's as as people start to explore, they're inevitably going to bump into some of those things, and it's not a terrible thing any more so than we did with any pattern as people started to adopt it. But what's good is I think the ecosystem and you know is is getting better at. Like, you know, your team is rapidly responding to to things and, and continuously innovating on what you've got. You've got, you know, Kubernetes, like yeah. you said, rapid life cycle on Kubernetes, you know, on Docker. Uh, so we've we've got a lot more rapid response to stuff and people are kind of learning before us. You know, we used to have to you were like a design expert in one particular platform. And it was a handful of people that shared that depth of knowledge. And now you're leaning on, you know, rack N people, you're leaning on the core OS team and tectonic and like all these other things where people are like, all right, they're running it elsewhere and they're learning for me. <laughs> and so I can kind right. of lean on, on that community, which is good. 
That's that's entirely. If if, if you're not if, if you're spinning these things up and not thinking how you're going to share it back, then you're. And this is what we saw over and over with OpenStack, right? When people would get too far off the main course, it it became very hard for them to keep up. Um, not because the ways they weren't doing it weren't good or productive. It would just be that you know they they sort of got off course. And then if we didn't provide ways for them to collaborate. Um, then we had a thousand flower bloom, and then it would just become a, a, a huge fight. Um, I, I could go into specifics around even some new OpenStack efforts where um, you know they they branched into three different approaches to do something, and it's it's a bit of a mess. Yeah, that's that we, we as we get into as we get close to the Boston, we'll get together again, and and I want to kind of dive into <laughs> some of those specifically because it'll be as we hit the, the exciting times and challenging times, you know, as much as we've learned, we also continue to repeat a lot of, of the same mistakes, but uh, you know, on the rack end side, Rob, what's, what's new and exciting in, in that world? What can we expect to see next? And uh, you know, where do people go when they want to find out more about, about digital rebar and rack end and, and all the stuff that you're doing? Wow. Uh, we are cruising like crazy. Um, so, uh, the upstream, the upstream Ansible stuff uh, for us is is sort of this next jump that we've done um, from a digital rebar perspective. Uh, we are um, doing some really interesting work on the OpenStack on top of Kubernetes environment that I had actually considered a joke. I even call it the joint OpenStack Kubernetes environment, um, <laughs> and and uh, but. I'll tell you, it's 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 firming up into a, into actually a much more real way to do it, and the way we're doing it is the way that I think lines up with the community, where we're actually using Kubernetes manifests. So we're we're, we're managing OpenStack in Kubernetes in a way that's true to Kubernetes, um, which is what I which is what I saw as a goal. It, I think it's it's very troubling from an OpenStack perspective because I it really um, boxes OpenStack's utility in. Um, that's why it's I, from the OpenStack's perspective, it's a joke. From Kubernetes' perspective, it's inevitable. Um, and I'm in both camps, so it works for me. Um, and we'd love to see people collaborate and play with that. Um, you know, our Kubernetes stuff is top notch. I, I don't think anybody's got a more robust, complete Kubernetes, especially community-facing uh, Kubernetes approach um, that we can support and help people with. Uh, Rackend is rackend.com. I am Zeekle Online. The Digital Rebar Project, which is an open source project, uh, Apache 2 license, um, and it's all contained. So this is one of the things that's awesome about Digital Rebar. We didn't. I don't usually talk about how it works itself. It's a containerized infrastructure, so it runs as a 12 plus container microservices architecture, super lightweight. Um, you know, we walk the walk when it comes to containerized stuff. Um, that is under rebar.digital is the website for that, um, and we're act we're in there every single day doing doing stuff, making improvements. We love to get people's feedback, um, help people get their their physical provisioning done, um, play with new hardware types and things like that. So always looking for for fun, play with that, help people not 
you know, escape from the cobbler, the hell that is cobbler. <laughs> That's right. I, that was my my funniest thing. I uh, I wrote on my Twitter bio one time. It said cobbler, and someone said like, "Oh, you work with cobbler." I'm like, "No, I was like legitimately a, a shoe repairman for like, for like five <laughs> years." And I said, "Believe me, I wouldn't go near the the automation project. That thing's a steaming fire." <laughs> but uh, yeah, there it was yeah. interesting in what it did. Uh, God, we could talk for a whole hour on cobbler and razor and the like and and, and how those things kind of where what, they live. What, what people what people forget with this is that those things, the 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 cobbler pieces and stuff the digital rebar does, because people are like, why why do you still use TFTP boot? That's old school stuff. And we're <laughs> like, well, Pixie is built into people's BIOS. It's not changing very fast, and so um, you you know. There's no, there's no new sexy when it comes to booting, booting gear. It's RAID and BIOS configuration and TFTP boot and DHCP, and you just got to make it work. Um, and that said, it, right? It's still we've done what we can to make it cool. Yeah, that's one of those things that there's nothing that's made us need to get rid of it. Like there's no landmark shift that said like we really don't need that stuff anymore because look at what we've got now. Like we, it's like while it's got its little oddities, mm. it's it it does because you know we've we've put all the effort into that next layer. Like, look, like these are minimum requirements, and this is where the real action happens is once that process is underway, and and that's that's what's cool. So, and as well for folks that that haven't taken a look at 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 rebar digital, do so. And then you've also got some good demo videos. And what's really great is you literally, you know. From ground up implementation, pushing out Kubernetes on clouds in a few minutes, and and they're real time demos. They're super easy to walk through yourself, which is really cool. So I encourage people to to have a run at it. It's uh, it costs you a few cents to to take the take the leap. As I tell people, like they're like, oh, doesn't it cost money to run AWS? I'm like, it does if you keep it there. But that's the whole fun. Is like you can watch the magic happen. And then undo the magic at the end, and you're not going to get that bill at the end of the month. But just don't forget that part. <laughs> Actually, we we do a lot with this bare metal hosting company called Packet Packet.net. Oh, okay. And uh, if you use RackN uh, RackN100 all caps, uh, you'll get a hundred dollar credit on that site. So you could you could do this stuff for nothing. That's really awesome. Don't don't let don't let the cost slow you down. Although. Amazon's not expensive either for for a hour long tutorial and demo. No, exactly, exactly. Well worth it. Excellent. Well, Rob, thanks very much for for chatting. This is it's always great to catch up, and I love hearing about the stuff that's going on with with the team and and with the community wrapped around Rackin and everything you're doing. And uh, you know, I hope to uh, hope to catch up in person soon. Uh, but like I said, definitely we'll we'll as we approach the OpenStack Summit, we'll. We'll do a, a separate stream on on that. That's a, that's a fun stream of consciousness chat all unto itself. And I would uh, love to do it. And, and as always, maybe we'll catch up on the, the OpenStack 5K, our in, informal running event. Yes, that's right. Summit, so. You got it. So there we go. Excellent. Thanks very much, Rob. Eric, thanks. Have a great day. If you like what you heard here and want to hear much more, don't forget to subscribe to the GC On Demand podcast. You can go to gcondemand.io where you'll find the links in order to catch us in iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and more. So go to gcondemand.io. Don't forget to rate us in your podcaster of choice and look for much, much more. Have a show idea? 
tweet us at GC On Demand. Thanks for listening.